Chapter 23, Part 2 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum. Written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 23, Other Enterprises, Part 2. In 1851, I became a part owner of the steamship North America. Our intention in buying it was to run it to Ireland as a passenger and freight ship. The project was, however, abandoned, and Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt bought one half of the steamer, while the other half was owned by three persons, of whom I was one. The steamer was sent around Cape Horn to San Francisco and was put into the Vanderbilt line. After she had made several trips, I called upon Mr. Vanderbilt at his office and introduced myself as this was the first time we had met. "'Is it possible you are Barnum?' exclaimed the Commodore, in surprise. "'Why, I expected to see a monster, part lion, part elephant, and a mixture of rhinoceros and tiger. Is it possible,' he continued, "'that you are the showman who has made so much noise in the world?' I laughingly replied that I was, and added that if I too had been governed in my anticipation of his personal appearance by the fame he had achieved in his line, I should have expected to have been saluted by a steam whistle, and to have seen him dressed in a pea jacket, blowing off steam, and crying out, all aboard that's going instead of which replied mr vanderbilt i suppose you have come to ask me to walk up to the captain's office and settle after this interchange of civilities we talked about the success of the north america and having got safely around the horn and of the acceptable manner in which she was doing her duty on the pacific side we have received no statement of her earnings yet said the commodore but if you want money give your receipt to our treasurer, and take some. A few months subsequent to this, I sold out my share in the steamship to Mr. Daniel Drew. The day after closing with Mr. Drew, I discovered an error of several hundred dollars, a matter of interest on some portion of the purchase money, which had been overlooked. I called on Mr. Drew and asked him to correct it, but could get no satisfaction. I then wrote him a threatening letter, but received no response. I was on the eve of suing him for the amount due me when the news came that the steamship North America was lying at the bottom of the Pacific. It turned out that she was sunk several days before I sold out, and as the owners were mulcted in the sum of many thousands of dollars damages by their passengers, besides suffering a great loss in their steamship, I said no more to the millionaire Drew about the few hundreds which he had withheld from the showman. Some reference to the various enterprises and sideshows connected and disconnected from my museum is necessary to show how industriously I have catered for the public's amusement, not only in America but abroad. When I was in Paris in 1844, in addition to the purchase of Robert Houdin's ingenious automaton writer and many other costly curiosities for the museum, I ordered, at an expense of $3,000, a panoramic diorama of the obsequies of Napoleon. Every event of that grand pageant, from the embarkation of the body at St. Helena, to its entombment at the Hotel des Invalides, 
amid the most gorgeous parade ever witnessed in France, was wonderfully depicted. This exhibition, after having had its day at the American Museum, was sold and extensively and profitably exhibited elsewhere. While I was in London during the same year, I engaged a company of Campanaliagens or Lancaster Bell Ringers, then performing in Ireland to make an American tour. They were really admirable performers, and by means of their numerous bells of various sizes, they produced the most delightful music. They attracted much attention in various parts of the United States, in Canada, and in Cuba. As a compensation to England for the loss of the bell ringers, I dispatched an agent to America for a party of Indians, including squaws. He proceeded to Iowa and returned to London with a company of sixteen. They were exhibited by Mr. Catlin on our joint account and were finally left in his sole charge. On my first return visit to America from Europe, I engaged Mr. Faber, an elderly and ingenious German who had constructed an automaton speaker. It was of life size, and when worked with keys similar to those of a piano, it really articulated words and sentences with surprising distinctness. My agent exhibited it for several months in Egyptian Hall, London, and also in the provinces. This was a marvelous piece of mechanism, though for some unaccountable reason it did not prove a success. The Duke of Wellington visited it several times, and at first he thought that the voice proceeded from the exhibitor, whom he assumed to be a skillful ventriloquist. He was asked to touch the keys with his own fingers, and after some instruction in the method of operating, he was able to make the machine speak, not only in English, but also in German, with which language the Duke seemed familiar. Thereafter, he entered his name on the exhibitor's autograph book and certified that the automaton speaker was an extraordinary production of mechanical genius. During my first visit to England, I obtained, verbally, through a friend, the refusal of the house in which Shakespeare was born, designing to remove it in sections to my museum in New York, but the project leaked out, British pride was touched, and several English gentlemen interfered and purchased the premises for a Shakespearean association. Had they slept a few days longer, I should have made a rare speculation, for I was subsequently assured that the British people, rather than suffer that house to be removed to America, would have bought me off with 20,000 pounds. I did not hesitate to engage or attempt to secure anything, at any expense, to please my patrons in the United States, and I made an effort to transfer Madame Tussaud's worldwide celebrated waxwork collection entire to New York. The papers were actually drawn up for this engagement, but the enterprise finally fell through. The models of machinery exhibited in the Royal Polytechnic Institution in London pleased me so well that I procured a duplicate. Also duplicates of the dissolving views, the chromatrope and physioscope, including many American scenes painted expressly to my order at an aggregate cost of $7,000. After they had been exhibited in my museum, they were sold to itinerant showmen, and some of them were afterwards on exhibition in various parts of the United States. In June 1850, I added the celebrated Chinese collection to the attractions of the American Museum. I also engaged the Chinese family, consisting of two men, two small-footed women, and two children. 
My agent exhibited them in London during the World's Fair. It may be stated here that I subsequently sent to London the celebrated artiste de la Mano to paint a panorama of the Crystal Palace in which the World's Fair was held, and Colonel John S. Dussol, an able and accomplished editor, whom I sent with de la Mano, wrote an accompanying descriptive lecture. Like most panoramas, however, the exhibition proved a failure. The giants whom I sent to America were not the greatest of my curiosities, though the dwarves might have been the least. The Scotch boys were interesting not so much on account of their weight as for the mysterious method by which one of them, though blindfolded, answered questions put by the other respecting objects presented by persons who attended the surprising exhibition. The mystery, which was merely the result of patient practice, consisted wholly in the manner in which the question was propounded. In fact, the question invariably carried its own answer. For instance, What is this? meant gold. Now what is this? silver. Say what is this? copper. Tell me what this is? iron. What is a shape? long. Now what shape? round. Say what shape? square. Please say what this is? a watch. Can you tell what is in this lady's hand? A purse. Now please say what this is. A key. Come now, what is this? Money. How much? A penny. Now how much? Sixpence. Say how much? A quarter of a dollar. What color is this? Black. Now what color is this? Red. Say what color? Green. And so on ad finitum. To such perfection was this brought that it was almost impossible to present any object that could not be quite closely described by the blindfolded boy. This is the key to all exhibitions of what is called second sight. In 1850, the celebrated Bateman children acted for several weeks at the American Museum, and in June of that year I sent them to London with their father and Mr. Legrand Smith, where they played in the St. James Theatre and afterwards in the principal provincial theatres. The elder of these children, Miss Kate Bateman, subsequently attained the highest histrionic distinction in America and abroad, and reached the very head of her profession. In October 1852, having stipulated with Mr. George A. Wells and Mr. Bushnell that they should share in the enterprise and take the entire charge, I engaged Miss Catherine Hayes and Herr Begnis to give a series of 60 concerts in California, and the engagement was fulfilled to our entire satisfaction. Mr. Bushnell afterwards went to Australia with Miss Hayes, and they were subsequently married. Both of them are dead. Before setting out for California, Miss Catherine Hayes, her mother and sister, spent several days at Iranistan and were present at the marriage of my eldest daughter, Caroline, to Mr. David W. Thompson. The wedding was to take place in the evening, and in the afternoon I was getting shaved in a barber shop in Bridgeport when Mr. Thompson drove up to the door in great haste and exclaimed, Mr. Barnum, Iranistan is in flames. I ran out half-shaved with the lather on my face, jumped into his wagon, and bade him drive home with all speed. I was greatly alarmed, for the house was full of visitors who had come from a distance to attend the wedding, and all the costly presents, dresses, refreshments, and everything prepared for a marriage celebration, to which nearly a thousand guests had been invited, were already in my house. 
Mr. Thompson told me that he had seen the flames bursting from the roof, and it seemed to me that there was little hope of saving the building. My mind was distressed, not so much at the great pecuniary loss which the destruction of Iranistan would involve, as at the possibility that some of my family or visitors would be killed or seriously injured in attempting to save something from the fire. Then I thought of the sore disappointment this calamity would cause to the young couple, as well as to those who were invited to the wedding. I saw that Mr. Thompson looked pale and anxious. Never mind, said I, we can't help these things. The house will probably be burned, but if no one is killed or injured, you shall be married tonight, if we are obliged to perform the ceremony in the coach house. On our way, we overtook a fire company, and I employed them to hurry up their machine. Arriving in sight of Iranistan, we saw huge volumes of smoke rolling out from the roof, and many men on top of the house were passing buckets of water to pour upon the fire. Fortunately, several men had been engaged during the day in repairing the roof, and their ladders were against the house. By these means, and with the assistance of the men employed upon my grounds, water was passed very rapidly, and the flames were soon subdued without serious damage. The inmates of Iranistan were thoroughly frightened. Catherine Hayes and other visitors packed their trunks and had them carried out on the lawn, and the house came as near destruction as it well could and escape. While Miss Hayes was in Bridgeport, I induced her to give a concert for the benefit of the Mountain Grove Cemetery, and the large proceeds were devoted to the erection of the beautiful stone tower and gateway at the entrance of that charming ground. The land for this cemetery, about 80 acres, had been bought by me years before from several farmers. I had often shot over the ground while hunting a year or two before, and had then seen its admirable capabilities for the purpose to which it was eventually devoted. After deeds for the property were secured, it was offered for a cemetery, and at a meeting of citizens several lots were subscribed for, enough, indeed, to cover the amount of the purchase money. Thus was begun the Mountain Grove Cemetery, which is now beautifully laid out and adorned with many tasteful and costly monuments. Among these are my own substantial granite monument, the family monuments of Harrell, Bishop, Hubble, Lyon, Wood, Loomis, Warden, Hyde, and others, and General Tom Thumb has erected a tall marble shaft which is surmounted by a life-size statue of himself. There is no more charming burial ground in the whole country, yet when the project was suggested, many persons preferred an intramural cemetery to this rural resting place for their departed friends, though now all concur in considering it fortunate that this adjunct was secured to Bridgeport before the land could be permanently devoted to other purposes. Sometime afterwards, when Mr. Dion Bouchicault visited me at Bridgeport, at my solicitation, he gave a lecture for the benefit of the cemetery. I may add that on several occasions I have secured the services of General Tom Thumb and others for this and equally worthy objects in Bridgeport. When the general first returned with me from England, he gave exhibitions for the benefit of the Bridgeport Charitable Society. September 28, 1867, I induced him and his wife, with Commodore Nutt and Minnie Warren, to give their entertainment for the benefit of the Bridgeport Library, 
thus adding four hundred and seventy-five dollars to the funds of that institution and on one occasion i lectured to a full house in the methodist church and the entire receipts were given to the library of which i was already a life member on account of previous subscriptions and contributions end of chapter twenty three part two recording by nancy cochran gergen gilbert arizona